Well, if you don't mind remaining standing, and I'm going to read our sermon text for today. And here it is. Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 7. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for feeding our souls by this word. And Father, we know that these will remain words um, useless to us if you do not, as you give them, give your Holy Spirit as well, to bore into our head, ears, uh, to give us understanding hearts. And so, Father, we pray right now uh, that you would give us those things, that we might understand these words and apply them well to our life and to your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Well, thank you for having me here today. It's been wonderful to be uh, in Seattle for the last few days. And I'm going to just get right into our sermon this morning. And I do want to apologize. When my church made me a pastor, they made a a school teacher pastor. And so whenever I'm up in the pulpit, I always become one of many classes. And we're going to start today with literature class. Uh, So here we go. Uh, D.H. Lawrence was no Christian. In fact, he was quite a terrible man. I don't know if you've ever read stuff by him. He was an English writer and a poet. Uh, After World War I, he went into self-exile. He called it his savage pilgrimage. Um, And he traveled the world and and, uh, wrote books and short stories and poems. And the shortest poem he ever wrote uh, has a lot to do with what we're talking about today. It is called Self-Pity. And it goes like this, and I'm going to start with the title, uh, Self-Pity by D.H. Lawrence. I never saw a wild thing, sorry for itself. A small bird will drop frozen dead from a bough without ever having felt sorry for itself. Ta-da, there you go. I don't love the poem. It's modernist, it's free verse, it's clunky, it only rhymes, is why I call it free verse, by by repeating itself. Um, And Lawrence, on purpose, it was the movement he was in, uh, chose to use, um, well, he didn't choose to use beautiful words. Uh, But as a literary teacher, what I want you to pick up on uh, is what the only thing modernist poetry is good for, is the architecture of the poem. So let me point out a few things in it. The poem is two sentences. Uh, Each sentence ends with three words, sorry for itself. In fact, that's the last word of the poem, uh, self, and the beginning of the poem if you start from the title, Self-Pity by D.H. Lawrence. So the architecture of the poem uh, begins and ends with self. And at the center of the whole poem is the word dead. A small bird shall drop frozen dead, Uh, which nearly suggests that self-pity circles back on itself, and and the center of that circle, uh, around that circumference, is death. It's a a roboros, do you remember? The, the, the snake that eats itself, that famous snake, you know, that, that, that it's, it's keeping itself alive by feeding on itself. Uh, the snake is its own life, and it takes its own life to be its own life. And so this giant circle of a snake is one of self-consumption. Roboros is the shape of Lawrence's poem, Self-Pity. And I'm going to draw a lesson from that for us this morning. That is the shape. Roboros is the shape of all self-pity itself, uh, because self-pity is what we're talking about today. 
The Bible has much to say about each of the battles we need to get into in life. And those battles um, are, you know, in many fronts. They're out there against the world. They're battles against spiritual forces, the devil. And there are battles uh, constantly against our own flesh. Always uh, many battles. But the battle against self-pity is in all three of those. It's in the world. Whole cultures are made out of grievance. Uh, We're watching this on the news right now. Uh, Self-pity is the devil's favorite tool. Um, Even when Jesus is taken out in the temptations, beneath all of his questions are, don't you feel bad for yourself? You haven't eaten in a while. Don't you feel bad for yourself? Shouldn't people be worshiping you? Uh, Shouldn't all that. You've come for the world. And it's something that our flesh uh, seems uh, immediately prone to. In fact, what I find interesting about self-pity is the closer a saint gets to the Lord and you're like, man, there's sanctification, just me, must be rushing on with, you know, a 12-cylinder engine. I mean, they're just doing so well. It's those saints in Scripture that that always seem to be targeted for self-pity quickest. I mean, what prophet does not at some point say something like, God, you tricked me? That's Jeremiah in Jeremiah 27. Or, if you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. You know, you're going to see that on a calendar sometime, because that's Moses in Numbers 11.15. I mean, at some point, it seems that the holier the saint, he's going to be sitting under a broom tree like Elijah, saying, it's enough, let me die. I mean, self-pity is the great fault of great saints. The Bible tells us that this, this, this battle comes at all of us, in myriad ways. So, what I want to do today is look at um, what the Bible says about this battle and says what to do with this battle. And I want to start with the first known instance in history of self-pity. And that explains our text. And I'm going to read it again, but this time I want to offer uh, comments to it. And, and you can hear the word, but, but this is the point where I'm going to be doing the Psalm 1 thing and, and meditating on these words a little bit slower. So, starting in verse 3 again. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Now, context, context, context. Uh, our context, if you were following through Genesis at this point... Um, is is that Eve was told that somebody would come from her who would um, undo the devil's work. This is the context of of what she's told. And she's told that it's going to come by pregnancy because she's told there will be be a pain in this. So it's, it's possible, it's likely, it's probable, in fact, to assume that she thought this was Cain. Uh, she, he comes out, and, and, and Cain becomes a gardener like, um, like his parents had been. He, he's living the lost life of Eden. Uh, Cain is professionally trying to do Eden out there in the world. And, and now time comes for an offering, and Cain brings an offering that, by the way, hundreds of Israelites uh, will bring in, in the years following in Israel. Uh, Cain brings Miprim uh, Hadama. Uh, this is called fruit of the ground, I think is the King James Version. A good translation in, in later versions is, is just a grain offering. There's nothing wrong with this offering. There's nothing sinful in itself. In fact, uh, God throughout Leviticus will, and Numbers will require this offering of people. This is a grain offering. So, so the rest of the Bible uh, tells us uh, this, this is a fine offering. Verse 4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. Now, Adam and Eve had another son too. Unlike Cain, he doesn't do the Edenic work of his parents. His work uh, is more, more like the dirty work that God did for his parents. You remember that, that, that the gift that God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden with, those robes he gave them to clothe them, the animal skin. I mean, this is God as tailor, God as clothes maker. And he gives them outfits as kind of the last item of Eden before sending them out into the world. Eden made. And I do wonder what Adam and Eve would have thought of those leather tokens of lost Eden. You know, as they 
aged and remembered where they had come from? Uh, Did they stare at those clothes and think theological thoughts about those clothes? I mean, after all, those clothes would have been yelling that an animal died for them. And it seems, this is by implication, but it seems Abel saw that, uh, for he's now doing that. He's killing an animal. There's no command at all uh, to kill an animal, but God did once to give them clothes, and Abel seems to be following suit, thinking thoughts about what happened. If I may put it this way, Abel is imitating God in his offering. Cain is imitating his parents in his offering. Abel is imitating God in his offering. Verse 5. But he, God, did not respect Cain in his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Now, I want to make this really clear. The major problem with Cain's offering is Cain. Uh, he, we know that because in the New Testament, Hebrews 11:4 uh, says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So why is Abel's sacrifice respected? We learn in Hebrews because of faith. Right, right. So, so why isn't Cain's gift respected? Well, Hebrews 11.6, because without faith, it is impossible to please God. The problem with Cain, uh, Cain's offering is Cain. His attitude, it's what we're immediately told about, his, his, his lack of faith and, and not his offering. And, that, and that's why the narrative focuses not on the right technique after this. See, Cain, if you had just brought animal it would have been better than bringing grain. But he focuses on what Cain will felt at that moment, which was uh, very angry and his countenance fell, uh, irritation and depression. Uh, he, was, he was mad and sad. And God confronts Cain, uh, not about the offering, but about his mood. Verse 6. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? God does not need an answer to that question. He knows the answer. When when God asks a question in Scripture, uh, it's so that we would ask it of ourselves and learn about ourselves. God is calling Cain to think, to reason. Let us reason together kind of talk. Verse 7, if you do well... Will, not, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. God points out that the danger lying at the foot of Cain's feelings is the sin at the door. In Genesis 49.9, that word there, sin lies at the door, is used to describe in in one of the blessings of, of, of Jacob, a lion crouching low, as if preparing to take a prey. And so, in other words, Cain's feeling sorry for himself is a predatory feeling. And we know that while it might have attacked him, we know who actually becomes the prey as we keep reading the story. Now, this is history's first example of self-pity. His countenance falls, Cain. Uh, But, of course, it doesn't stop there, and it's it's still with us now. In fact, we might ask, what happens uh, when a person's self-pity becomes a culture's self-pity? And and there's a lot you can say with that, and I'm I'm going to jump out of what I probably could say about what happens in Genesis after this, Uh, but I want you to think about this in our time. Uh, If Cain became culture... If Cain became culture, what would that culture look like? Well, it would look like other people, it would look like people looking at other people's blessings as offenses. This is what happened. One man, this is what would happen if that went cultural. In other words, uh, Cain's culture of self-pity would be, would look like a culture of victimization. And, uh, interesting thing to note, uh, that victimization would turn violent. And then think about terms that are new to our culture when, they're, when I was a kid. Microaggressions, an incident of unintended offenses that displays discrimination. Safe spaces, a place to be safe from potential offenses of free speech. Cancel culture, to thrust someone out of a social circle due to perceived offense. Fragility, uh, counteroffenses taken from uh, Uh, um, um, confronting earlier offenses. 
the victim impact statements. That was a, a 91 uh, Supreme Court decision that juries can receive testimony on the pain a victim felt uh, as part of the evidence for a trial to determine guilt. Complicity versus complacency. In silence is complicity. A refusal to ally with the offended. Gaslighting. Uh, which sees it as manipulation to tell someone that offenses were not intended, or, of course, being triggered, the word that justifies taking offense. Now, I imagine you know some of these terms. I work in a school, so I spent, uh, basically, I had to just enter these into my vocabulary in the last three years. <laughs> oh, that's what you mean. Um, and, and perhaps you're hearing them with more regularity, and perhaps you were just wiser than I, and you knew them before uh, 2020. Um, but they're all newish. Uh, they, did, they definitely weren't there in the 80s. I didn't know one of those. Uh, I don't even think they were there in the 90s. Uh, the, and as sociologists will tell you, a change of vocabulary is always a change in a culture. And as soon as a new vocabulary shows up, a cultural shift is happening. Uh, a number of years ago, a book on this fact by sociologists Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning noted uh, that there was this change of culture, and it gave a name to it. It's kind of famous now. The book is called The Rise of Victimhood Culture. Campbell and Manning try to explain this cultural shift that centralizes on offenses taken by examining other historical views of how offenses used to be taken. I mean, in the vocabulary I just read, that they're all about offenses. So, so if this cultural shift seems to be on how we are now taking offensive, how did we used to take offenses? And they explained um, this in three parts. It's kind of a the sociology world, a big book. Uh, you might have read it. First, the older culture, they called uh, honor culture. In such cultures, when somebody is offended, they retaliated directly. Person to person, group to group, uh, think American Wild West. Right, right. You, you, you just went out there, you drew your guns, and you, you sorted it out right there. Where, where, this is also what you did with, in, in old movies with the bully after school, right? Honor culture. I'll meet you at three in the playground field. Right? Honor culture. And America had an honor culture for a while, some regions more than others, uh, but that tide of that cultural wane, the tide of that culture waned in the face of what Campbell and Manning uh, talk about as dignity culture. When someone is offended in a dignity culture, they just cut off contact with that person. Where honor culture tended to be intolerant of offenses, dignity culture tended to see strength and poise by not taking offense and just walking away. The old saying, uh, sticks and stones will break my bones and words will never hurt me. Well, no one would say that in an honor culture because words can offend honor. And sir, you know, uh, I challenge you to a duel and you hit him with a glove. But sticks and stones can, will break my bones, but words will never hurt me is a sentiment that comes straight out of dignity culture. Because your words are just words and, and I am more dignified than you because I didn't go so low as to say them. And now, excuse me, I'm going to go to my side of the party. But, but sociologists, Campbell and Manning, say American culture is no longer either of these. A new culture waxes large in our midst. And they titled it victimhood culture. Uh, they have many critics, and their critics like to call it vigilance culture. But both agree that there is a cultural change. In these new social interactions, offenses are taken personally again, just like honor culture. But unlike old honor culture, we do not deal with the offenses directly. We go to a third party. We publicize grievances to gain moral authority. And I think that's an important sentence that, that they had, so I want to say it again. We publicize grievances to gain moral authority. You know, once offended parties might throw a punch, that's honor, or file a lawsuit, that's a dignity culture, but now we, just, we appeal on social media. That, that's victimhood culture. Third parties are the major emphasis in victimhood culture. It, it, it's what causes a family member or friend to, to post an offense on Facebook and not address it with a family member directly, doing the Matthew 18 kind of thing, in order to save the relationship. It's what causes, even on larger scales, watchdog groups to defame a culprit in the media more than what used to be the case of taking culprits to courts right? and getting legal redress for the wrongs. Now, to be clear, none of this denies that there are victims in the world. There are victims. But what Campbell and Manning describe by the term victimhood culture is the new mo mode of dealing with offenses, 
No longer will direct retaliation seem to give anyone moral authority when offended. We don't Vikings that smash things. That's not where the authority comes from. No longer will dignified restraint of gentlemen uh, seem to give moral authority to the offended. Now moral authority is seen to be possessed by those who can publicize a grievance first and public shame best. And that is where we are in the 2020s. And what is the root of such a culture? Well, frankly, it's self-pity. It's self-pity that has all grown up. Self-pity is how you publicize uh, your victim status uh, to yourself, poor me, poor me, poor me, and how you uh, publicize your victimhood status to your neighbor. Do you see? Poor, poor me, poor me. While in an earlier age, self-pity was a personal battle or a spiritual battle, now largely self-pity has, has, has taken on a public format. Self-pity is making a culture we are in, uh, well, just taking over this culture increasingly, and it is a culture that is incompatible with Christ and the church. And because it's an incompatible culture, it is a culture that needs to be resisted, and I would say, according to the title to the sermon I gave you, even be fought. So if we need to fight it, what does the Bible teach us about self-pity? What must we know and what must we do to join this biblical battle against this, uh, this anti-Christian sentiment and culture and spirit? And even though this is a cultural problem, all cultural problems, as trying to explain in the last uh, two days of talks here, all cultural problems start by dealing with yourself. They start at home. Uh, and, and so you need to deal in this battle with, with your self-pity first uh, and the self-pity that exists between your relationships, if it's there. As Jesus put it, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean also. So, so what I want to do is talk biblical strategies. And I, I usually give sermon notes, but um, Ty sent me a uh, form of his sermon notes, and they were so incredible. I'm like, well, I'm not going to give my sermon notes. So um, I just didn't do it, Ty. But, um, but if you take notes, this is the time I, I would do it, um, you know, my little simple ones, and just write a line right here. But the first strategy in this biblical battle against self-pity is to know its origin. You have to know where this is coming from. Know its origin. A and here's the answer in one sentence. The origin of self-pity is pride. The origin of self-pity is pride. Uh, look at our text today. I, I'm using Mar Martin Luther here. There, there's some commentaries that disagree with this now, but I just think Martin Luther did such a good job on it. Uh, the first child the world ever saw, his name was Cain. It, it, it comes from the word kana, uh, which means acquire. Eve even says so in verse 1, I have acquired a man from the Lord. It's an explanatory sentence that's so normal at biblical births where you, you say a sentence and that becomes a child's name. Eve likely named her first child acquired, believing the promise that one of her kids would undo the devil's work. And so here she goes, I've acquired him. Genesis 3.16. Uh, God said, in pain you will bring forth a child. By Genesis 4.1, she's had the pain and she has the child. And so she says, I got what God said I get. I had the hard part he said I would have, pain. And now I've, and I've got a child, which he said I would have. And this is going to undo it all. I got what God said I would get. I acquired it, Cain. Eve then has another son. Uh, the second child uh, ever born, uh, as far as we know, was named Abel. Abel likely comes from the Hebrew word hebel, which means vapor. I say likely because the Bible doesn't give us one of those explanatory sentences, but that absence might even go further to explain the name, because if it comes, if his name, Abel, comes from hebel, uh, well, then that is what the Bible always uses as a word for something that is pointless, unneeded, or unuseful. Uh, Job 35.6, Job opened his mouth in vapors, Hebel, Abel, his words were pointless in other words. Or Psalm 39.5, at his best, man is but a vapor, uh, Abel, uh, the, word will, uh, the world will resolve itself without people being around. 
Proverbs 21.6, wealth is a fleeting vapor. How about Abel? A useless thing when, about the real things in life. I mean, if this is true, then this means that the first child in history is called, here he is, the one God promised, Cain. And the second child in history was called, I don't know why God gave him to us, secondborns. <laughs> He's Abel. Now, if anyone should feel sorry for himself in this story in Genesis 4, it should be Abel. But that's not what we know him for. Uh, the book of Hebrews says Abel learned to trust in the Lord from all of this. Maybe he learned humility in this whole setup. Cain, on the other hand, the world's first firstborn. I do want to say, before I start making fun of firstborns, I'm a firstborn, my wife is a firstborn. We had a super firstborn in our firstborn. So, but, so if, I'm, if I'm cutting at you, okay, I'm cutting at myself. Cain, on the other hand, is the one in the narrative who, in fact, feels sorry for himself. Uh, perhaps his parents' attitude towards him uh, taught him to walk into every room like the true firstborn he was, saying, I am the most important person here. This is the kind of mo monsters that mother bears can make when they're like, that's my boy. You know? But when God um, was not as impressed with Cain as his parents were, Cain's ego is wounded. And do you know what wounded pride looks like? Well, it looks like self-pity. John Piper, I think, says this, oh, so excellently. And he said this in a small writing of his. Boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I have achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I have suffered so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. The reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be so needy. But the need arises from a wounded ego. It doesn't come from a sense of unworthiness. Uh, Self-pity comes from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. Self-pity is the response of unapplauded pride. That's Cain. That's Cain. A response to unapplauded pride. And then in the 20th century, one of the most important child-raising principles everyone taught everyone else uh, was that a child must have good self-esteem. Right. That, was, that was, so in homes and schools and on soccer teams, kids were bathed and basted in praise. And participant awards were given out, you know, just like receipts. And, and psychological petting was so encouraged. You are so special. You are just, just amazing. Um, uh, believe in yourself, pet, 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 pet. And the 20th century did this because the 20th century believed that, that if children had high self-esteem, everything else would fall into place. It would just be wonderful. They'd get good grades, they'd get good jobs, crime would decease in the world. You know, it'd just be wonderful. Just praise kids enough. Uh, but the 20th century didn't pay attention to what earlier generations um, taught about self-esteem. I always have my grandfather's voice when I think about these things. Stop saying the kid's so amazing. Um, <laughs> Yes, there, there is a problem with low self-esteem, but also there is a terrible problem with high self-esteem too because self-esteem is a human problem. You know, much better the virtue of something like self-discipline or the freedom of self-forgetfulness or the God-given grace of just straight humility, but self-esteem, like D.H. Lawrence's poem, is still all about the self. And so it circles in on itself. It's... Self-esteem, because it's all about the self, it, it's a stuffy and, and constricted and, and trapped place to be. And, you know, but oh, to leave the inner stuffy city where everything is built to your honor or everything is built from your pain. You know, that terrible place where esteem is always the currency and ego is always your chain. Get out of that. I mean, much better to walk out into the open-air world, which is just not about you. With an open sky above you that lets you look up and forget yourself for a while. 
I mean, that place to, to love a neighbor and to do a job as Jesus tells us to do it, Luke 17.10. So likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, I, or we are unprofitable servants. We've only done what was our duty. I mean, that statement is not just about humility, it's also about what freedom looks like. But, but we were wiser than our fathers and our children, and we, we, we sipped the gospel of self-esteem and made a proud generation. And when a proud generation finds that it is not as amazing as its parents said it was, when the outer world wounds in that proud generation's ego, what happens? Well, Cain is what happens. A culture of victimhood appears. Remember, self-pity is the response of un applauded pride, said Piper. Really, what I think those sociologists are talking about is the 21st century's uh, victimhood culture is there because the 20th uh, century's culture was one of self-esteem. We live in the culture of a Cain because the generation before we were raising Cain. <laughs> For frankly, you don't need to teach your children um, that they are great people. Um, it's their inner disposition. Uh, even if they're moody, it might be because they're great people and you, mom and dad, just don't know. You know? I mean, frankly, we need to teach our kids that there is a great God. And we don't need to teach our kids to love themselves. That's their inner bent. We need to teach them to love God, and we need to teach them more than that how much God loves them. And if I might meddle for a moment in your parenting, I have no idea what, what this culture up here is like, but I really like you all. It's a great culture. But, but I want to talk a little bit about parenting. Um, I spent most of my life as a school administrator. Uh, so there is um, what, what is so dangerous about not discipling kids, I would say, after however many years, 20, well, 17 years of being a school administrator, is that is one of the worst things I think I see all the time is kids that are not disciplined for, uh, for sulking. Uh, and I've seen terrible things disciplined. Uh, in my experience, parents seem ready, uh, sometimes uh, way too fast, to discipline for bad grades, or to discipline for bad words, or to discipline for bad choices, or even to discipline a kid for bad luck. And most of those, I stop it. You know, but, but rare is the discipline of a kid for a bad attitude, especially self-pity. Maybe it comes from I do think it comes from just empathy, a sinful empathy, because we feel sorry for ourselves too. And so when our kid is not getting what we want them to get, we feel sorry for them. And when they feel sorry for themselves, we're like, yeah, I get it, I get it. Uh, maybe it's sulking also that just doesn't offer much resistance. You know, when your kid is feeling self-pity, they, they get quiet, they get introverted, and you're like, man, this is easy parenting. They're just sitting there moody. They're not being very rebellious. But actually, I think the attitude, uh, what, what attitude is going on is the center of all the good discipline you'll do. I mean, look at Cain. God does not direct his fatherly discipline to Cain's choice of offering when he goes to Cain. God as father does not look at Cain's choice of occupation. You know, why are you being a farmer? And, and you know, God points, the only thing that God points to in his fatherly role with Cain is, why are you angry? Well, why, why, why are you? That's the sin crouching at the door for you. I mean, when a parent lets a kid soak, a parent is letting a kid soak in their unimplotted pride. And the same is true for us, moving away from parenting to you just taking yourself by, by the shirt sleeve. We, we, we might not in our life curse. We, we might not seek revenge. We might not rage and get angry. We, but... but when we allow ourselves to feel sorry for ourselves, what we're doing is making a big bathtub of pride and sitting in it. And we soak in it until our fingers look like prunes. And, and so the first battle against self-pity is to say, do you know what this is? Do you know, when I am feeling self-pity or when I see self-pity, do you know what this is? This is pride. It's pride that didn't get what it wanted. And that brings me to the second biblical strategy in this battle against self-pity. And that's to know where it's going. So if we need to know its origin, and it comes from pride, then where, where does self-pity go? 
And you can tell from, from Genesis 4, well, it goes towards violence is where it goes. It's predatory. I mean, this is the story of Cain and Abel, after all. While I've been focusing on Cain's feelings and God's counseling, what this narrative is known for is, that, is what the actions that Cain's feelings got him to. After all, the world's first homicide was the fruit of a man who felt sorry for himself. But we know this end of self-pity from other narratives, too. I could have picked, and I did think about it, but I could have picked the story of Jonah, which is a great book about self-pity. The Assyrians have hurt Israel. Assyrians were terrible. Jonah doesn't want them forgiven because they really were terrible. He runs away from having to confront them. God brings him back in the belly of a fish to do it. He sulkingly goes. He sulkingly preaches. Nineveh, Nineveh repents, and he's mad. He prays that God would take Nineveh or get rid of him. He prays for two deaths in Jonah. Destroy them or get rid of me. I mean, do you notice Jonah's self-pity, where does it go in the end? He wants a death. Or take this one, the story of Naboth's vineyard. I mean, Ahab wants it. And Naboth won't sell it. And so in 1 Kings 21.4, we read that, those wonderful words. So Ahab laid down in his bed and turned away his face towards the wall and would eat no food. I mean, he's sulking ridiculously. And his wife, Jezebel, comes in and says, oh, we can take care of this. Let's kill somebody. <laughs> I mean, self-pity leads to someone's death. I mean, what happens then when self-pity goes to seed in a culture? Well, a victimhood culture, uh, as we have said, uh, victimhood culture always leads to violent cultural upheavals. Right? And so, uh, imagine. I don't know if this is going to make you mad. You don't have to invite me back. But in 2020, BLM used the rhetoric of victimhood culture. Look at George Floyd. But the manifestation of that victimhood was what? Burning cities in the U.S. Or go 100 years before that, almost perfectly 100 years before that, from 2020 to 1920. And Hitler's Mein Kampf comes out. And that book is victimhood culture. The Jews sold out Germany in World War II. Deutschstoys, Deutschstoys, the backstab. But what was the cultural manifestation of that victimhood? A holocaust. And in all my years of education, every bully I have ever had in my office for legitimate bullying used the rhetoric with me of victimhood. But you don't know what they did to me. But you don't know what they did to me. Or you don't know what I'm dealing with at home. I mean, it's always, always, always uh, the rhetoric of victimization, I've been harmed, but its manifestation always comes out as doing harm. A culture of victimhood teeters into a culture of violence. I mean, we think self-pity is squishy. Mm, poor little baby. But, but it often ends tragically. So we need to deal with self-pity primarily in ourselves and, and, because we need to know the danger of where this leads, our self-pity. And what strategy are we given for it in Scripture? I'm going to give one right now. Let me explain it before you say, well, that's a bad one. Um, but but here, here it is. The, the biblical answer to this, the biblical strategy for this is, is toughen up. But let me explain what I mean by that. In Hebrews 12, 5 through 7 reads this. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. That's what Cain was getting nor the de be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. So if you endure... Now, did you notice that? Right, right there. What is the strategy that Hebrews 12 gives when God is dealing with you with heavy strokes? If you endure. I mean, the strategy for discouragement, don't be discouraged is endure. When God lets life get hard, get into it being hard. This is good. It's hard, but it's good. Let me do this again. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and came. I mean, he came. 
Jesus didn't get discouraged saying, I'm equal, I'm equal. The father let life get hard and he came into it, just went into it being hard. You see, it's, if I can put this another way, it, it's not tough to throw a tantrum, but it's really tough to stay calm and keep your head. It's not tough to get bitter. That's easy. But it's tough to do Matthew 18 and go personally and directly to someone to talk to them in order to preserve the relationship and maybe win your brother or sister. It's not tough to gossip about how someone has wronged you. That's easy and, and feels relieving too. But it is tough, it's biblically tough, to let love cover a multitude of sins and pray for those who persecute you. That's what I mean by toughen up. Do the, do the hard thing, the tough thing. And, and so, you know, perhaps one of our, our daily prayers should be, Lord, help me, help me toughen up. We in the world will grow increasingly ferocious till the church learns how to do the hard things, the biblical things, the things uh, that, that do not let self-pity plant roots, roots in us or, or reap a, 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 a vicious harvest. But know this, and I do mean it to make us pause, self-pity ends in violence. And you might say, well, these are not so much strategies as thoughts about how dangerous self-pity is. Uh, oh, maybe so, but let me give my third point then, the third biblical strategy in this battle against self-pity. And that's to know the holy rival of self-pity. What fights best against self-pity? Well, self-pity's rival is God's pity. Self-pity's rival is God's pity. That might seem like a silly sentence, so let me explain. If you see that self-pity is your great enemy, if, if cultural self-pity is our great enemy, then how do you fight it? Well, what is self-pity's opponent? Who actually puts on sword and, and buckler against our self-pity? Who will champion uh, over the prideful, violent body of our feeling sorry for ourselves? The thing that fights that self-pity, the true and adequate uh, rival to our self-pity, is to get a good look, a biblical look, at God's pity. And the second strategy against self-pity, the one I just did, uh, we see that that it leads to violence, and consequently, I said, toughen up, do the hard thing. Uh, you, know, you know, confront someone, forgive someone, that's, that's hard. Uh, bless those who curse you, uh, be wronged and do not wrong, you know, the tough stuff. But I don't want you to think that this is the biblical call to toughen up because there is no pity out there for you. I mean, that is just a tough, tough world and a tough, hard God, and you just got to, like, get into it. Let's all be Stoics. That's an utter lie. You see, there is, there is pity out there. There is a pity out there. There is a pity that reigns over your heads, uh, that directs the course of your life and my life, every one of his children's lives, rough-hewn though we make them. Hear it. Joel 2.18. The Lord is zealous for his land, and he pities his people. Isaiah 63, 9, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all their days. Beautiful. In Psalm 103:13, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. May I tell you a biblical truth on this, you cannot feel more pity for yourself than God does for you, for you would never do for yourself what he did for you, endure the cross in utter selflessness. You see, that is what the evil of self-pity is. It is swapping out his pity for our own. To that degree, it is the utter evil of selfishness. You 
have never loved yourself more than he loved you on the cross. It is one of our darkest sins that we think we care about ourselves more than he cares for us. In fact, it is often how we sabotage and violate God's love and mercy and glory by denying that he pities. And look at Cain. Look at Cain. God is extending him kindness in our narrative today. God is seeking him out when he's under his broom tree. God is talking to him, saying, if you do well, will, will not you be accepted? He, he is, this is a God in this chapter, to this murderer, this is a God of second chances. But Cain doesn't want God's counsel, and he doesn't seem even to want God's pity. After all, he has enough pity for himself. So he pushes away God's pity, and he spirals down, 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 into bitterness, into homicide, into damnation. I mean, Cain's great enemy is Cain, his pity for himself. And the same is true of me and you. Your great enemy is your pity for yourself. But there is a rival to that enemy. There is a challenger to the inner tyrant, and he was on the cross. So we should look at the cross and know the truth, even tell ourselves the truth. Say, self, I... I don't care for myself as much as he cares for me because I know I would not give as much for myself as he gave for me. I would not endure for myself what he endured for me. I would have been crying in Gethsemane and then run out. I'm not doing it. So I will trust him more than I trust myself. And, I will, and while I wait on him, you know, I will do 1 Peter 5.7. Cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you? I mean, the battle between pities is the great battle going on in all of this. And I can think of few places it is expressed better than, than ending, just as I began, again, as a literary teacher. So I want to read you a section, but this time from A Horse and His Boy. Uh, I think at different periods of my life, different of those books have been my favorite, but as I've become a pastor, that is becoming my favorite of all the Narnia books. So I'm going to end telling it. Our character in the book, if you don't know it, is Shasta. And in the book, he has had a bad day. In fact, he has had many bad days in a whole string of days. And, uh, and, and, and then he's just up to the brim and over the top by chapter 11. And then finally, after all the difficulty and danger, he finds the goal, the king, King Loon of Archenland. And that long-sought-for king invites Shasta to follow him, and it seems like all his trouble is over. It seems like the goal is reached. And then, on top of all of it, Shasta gets lost in the mist. And this is when I'm going to start reading. I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. Those Narnian lords and ladies got safe away. I was left behind. Avarice, Bree, Huyn are all snug with the old hermit. Of course, I was the one who was sent on. King Loon and his people must have got safely into the castle and shut the gates, but I am left out. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that tears rolled down his cheeks. But what put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. As Shasta discovered that someone or something was walking beside him and could see nothing, and the thing or person was going so quietly, and then there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. Read a little bit further. Shasta can bear it no more. He tries to ignore it for a while, and he finally asks, Who are you? He says, scarcely above a whisper, One who has waited long for you to speak. Oh, please, please, do go away, said Shasta. What harm have I ever done to you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. 
and he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hands and face. There, it said, now tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by a fisherman. And then he told the story of his escape and how he was chased by lions and forced to swim uh, for their lives and of all their dangers. And he told about the heat and the thirst of the desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. But don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've told you there, there were at least two the first night, and, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. <laughs> As Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with avarice. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to the shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight, ready to receive you. The lion is, of course, Christ in the story. And what a wonderful picture. There is a pity. There is a care at work for Shasta that turns out to have shaped every moment of his life. And that is a truth that the Bible says all the more clearer is true for you, too. Oh, Christian, you are more loved than all your sinful self-preservation would ever let you believe. And our best battles against all the pride and violence in our world and in us from our self-pity is to look at the God on the cross, for all of us to believe that and to never lose sight of that and to come to church and Dave Hatcher for you to preach pointedly that pity that we all need. For that pity changed everything in Israel 2,000 years ago and it still does. So in this biblical battle against self-pity, remember the points. If you didn't take notes, let me repeat it again. That your self-pity comes from your pride. That our self-pity is aiming at a violent end, but that his pity, his pity, it seeks you, it saves you, it defends you, it yearns for you. So... Christians up here in Seattle, cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the love that reigns over us. Father, by that love, give us a boldness to go forward into each one of our days. Remembering those sweet words that all things are working together for the good of those who are loved by you, that, that nothing can keep us from the love of Christ. Father, those words of love are meant for our boldness. So get them into our ears, get them into our heart, and get them into our feet and our hands that we would go out with that boldness. In Jesus' name, amen.